Welcome to the Statesman Journal's Explore Oregon podcast. I'm your host, Zachary Ness, and in each episode, producer David Davis and I highlight Oregon's most beautiful and interesting places. This podcast is brought to you by the American Forest Resource Council, supporting responsible forestry on public lands throughout the Pacific Northwest. Learn more at amforest.org. In this episode, we're talking with outdoor writer and author Adam Sawyer about a land of lighthouses, forest, coastline, and extraordinarily famous cheese. But first, here's some guitar music to get us rolling. All right, David. So in this episode, we are welcoming a prolific travel writer of the Pacific Northwest to talk about one of the most diverse and interesting areas in Oregon. Adam Sawyer has written for everybody from The Oregonian to Willamette Week to Backpacker Magazine, and he's published a number of guidebooks. One of the most recent was 25 Hikes on Oregon's Tillamook Coast. Adam, thanks for being here, man. Hey, Zach, David, thank you guys so much for having me. It's uh, it's an honor to be here. So coming up, we're going to talk about the best adventures and some of the more interesting stories from the Tillamook area. But to start, Adam, can you kind of explain what we're talking about when we say the Tillamook Coast? Yeah, definitely. So um, the the book kind of covers, uh, I guess, Tillamook County in general was like the, the baseline for it. But because uh, it was kind of geared for, uh, let's say, like, people from Portland or outside of the Tillamook area, it, it covers things that are also on the way or maybe kind of just out of the county. But a lot of hikes on like Highway 26, the 6, the 53, kind of in between and uh, and up and down the 101. And so the coast range, the actual beach areas, uh, it, it kind of covers the county as is as the anchor point and kind of goes around there. Gotcha. So if we're talking about the Oregon coast, now Tillamook County, that goes from about Nezcoin up to Manzanita, correct? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Gotcha. Yeah. And so that's, you know, Tillamook coast is just kind of a way, uh, it's a branding thing, I think, from uh, the the tourism bureau there. And so the visit Tillamook coast is the name of the, the tourism bureau. And so it was kind of like, well, let's Let's uh, incorporate that into the name of the book and into the region that we're covering. But it actually kind of works, though, because it is kind of a distinct and interesting place. You know, you've got this fairly large town by coast standards in, in Tillamook and a lot of agriculture around it. So it has that kind of identity. But then once you get outside it, there's a remarkable number of really dramatic kind of amazingly cool places like once you once i started looking at this area that you'd sort of defined as the tillamook coast i mean i was blown away by how many of the most amazingly beautiful places are like you know neakani mountain cape lookout you know but there's also a lot of little places that are tucked away a lot of hidden gems so what drew you to this area i mean what was it about this area that you were like yeah i'm gonna you know write a book about it yeah it's pretty much uh everything you said right there and i'll piggyback off of that is uh and we, we've talked about this before is it the landscape is dramatic right like the the the, the way the coast range kind of surrounds uh the tillamook area or the bay there and then the difference in habitats that you have is, is, is staggering from the rainforests, estuaries, headlands, the sand dunes that we were talking about earlier. And, you know, you've got five different rivers, I think it is, kind of coming in at the same area. You've got the dramatic mountains in the back. You've got beach access. You've got a ton of those, you know, capes and spits. And then it also happens to be, or at least it was, and I think it still is to some degree, considerably less crowded than a lot of the other kind of headlining places on the Oregon coast where, you know, visitors flock to. And so it was to me, especially when I really started discovering or, or exploring the area, I'm like, wow, how is not everybody here with me right now? And so that just seemed like a great place to kind of dive into and focus on and write about. Yeah, you make a great point because I feel like, you know, you've got the seaside and Cannon Beach area, which gets really slammed. And then you have kind of the Lincoln City and Newport area to the south. It also is pretty well known, but it's almost like that in-between area that, you know, the Tillamook Coast, as you branded it here, 
Yeah, like people somehow miss that. Maybe they don't drive. They either go to that southern or northern place, but they don't tend to get to that middle place to the level as these right. other ones. No, it's a sweet spot. And uh, I'm really happy to have uh, gotten to spend as much time as I did there. And uh, still, even though I don't live uh, as close as I once did, still try to get down there uh, as much as possible. All right. So one thing that we are going to touch on in this podcast is the area's history. And there's a lot going on, like a lot. That's not a surprise given how long, you know, Native Americans, settlers and explorers have been in this area. But even so, there are next level like historical details. We're going to get into more of it later. But a few of my favorites include the fact that Tillamook County was almost the site of a nuclear power plant at what is now one of the most popular state parks like that really almost happened. Um, we've got stories about buried treasure, an underwater ghost forest, and a love-struck sea captain who rode his lady out to a certain rock to ask for her hand in marriage. So maybe you can guess the name of that rock if you think about it a little bit. <laughs> anyway, it's fantastic. So Adam, how much did you time did you spend with that history? Did that draw you in? Uh, yeah, you know, I've always... I don't know if I qualify as a history buff uh, in in the uh, traditional sense, but I, I really do get drawn in by the by the history of an area, and especially when you're doing things like researching a guidebook or even just uh, researching an area in general. Uh, it's it's amazing how much kind of pops up, and you go down these rabbit holes. Anyone who's ever spent any time researching anything or heck, even time on YouTube knows how easy it is to spiral down, down a rabbit hole of research. And uh, Tillamook also has uh, an amazing pioneer uh, history museum there that is really a, a great place to kind of start or dive into if you're getting into something uh, particular. And so, yeah, the, the area is just chock full of history, it's not just uh you know, from, from time immemorial, but like even the individual hikes and the mountains and stuff have, have these great backstories. Now, of course, this is an outdoors podcast, so we'll talk about the best outdoor adventures, but we'd be remiss if we didn't sort of start off with the elephant in the area. If you mentioned Tillamook to even, you know, folks who have never been to Oregon, they're going to probably mention the nationally famous blocks of yellow cheddar, ice cream, dairy products. And the large cheese factory recently got a pretty big makeover. It holds, you know, the distinction of being one of the largest non-beach related attractions there. What are your thoughts, Adam? That's great. Well, to start with, I love the fact that uh, the qualifiers that you led up with non-beach related tourist attractions. Uh, I love the use of qualifiers to get us over the hump in Oregon. Have you ever noticed that? Like, if, we, if we're not the, the biggest or the best at something, we use enough qualifiers to get it there. Like like Powell's was the the largest independent bookstore in the world, and then some place <laughs> took it over. So now it's like the largest English speaking bookseller on the planet. Kind of, <laughs> we, we 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 celebrate the wins where we can get them. Exactly, but uh, yeah, they're well earned. Um, but as you mentioned, the Tillamook Creamery is the straw that stirs the drink that is Tillamook County, uh, undeniably so. And and I would argue, you know, it's it's earned that right. It's anyone who's never been, especially if you haven't been since the, the remodel, it's Disneyland uh, and a, a potential nightmare for the lactose intolerant, but it, it is a, a dream factory <laughs> as well as a creamery. So the, the uh, self-guided tours are really cool. And I, I think they're kind of shut down at the moment um, for like social distancing, et cetera. But uh, you just kind of walk through and there's uh, interpretive displays and signs and everything is helpfully labeled. You're kind of above the din and watching cheese blocks go uh, a million miles an hour below you. And it, each station is labeled to help you understand what's going on. And then, of course, you make it through the end there and, and you exit through the gift shop, as it were. And there's just cheese of every conceivable uh, flavor and and presentation and then of course the the ice cream and there's great food options there now too as well so it's they get a lot of visitors and i think uh rightfully so it's a great place all right let's get to the good stuff to give us a better idea what you can find in sort of the expansive outdoors there around tillamook zach and adam and i are going to each pick a few of our favorite spots and highlight what what makes them special we'll highlight sort of the areas you might know well, sort of the big names. We'll also get into kind of the, the off the beaten path spots and some you may have never heard of. So 
uh, Zach, why don't you go ahead and get us get us started? All right, so my first pick is going to be two of the most beautiful beaches that I think I've ever hiked to. The two places are very close together, and they are Sitka Sedge and Clay Myers State Natural Area at Wayland Island. So both of these parks are around Sand, uh, Sand Lake in kind of this quiet little area about a half hour south of Tillamook, just north of Pacific City. At both parks, the adventure here is hiking. And so on two trails, you travel through a really interesting mix of intact estuaries and mud flats. There's a lot of birds, a lot of wildlife and ocean critters. And then the trail spits you out onto these white sand beaches with really beautiful views of Cape Lookout to the north, Haystack Rock and Cape Kiwanda to the south. Both hikes are pretty quiet by Oregon Coast standards. The entire experience is it's great, easy for kids maybe two to four miles, depending on, on how you choose to do it. And generally, I'm just a sucker for any hike that ends on a beach like this. You do hear occasional uh, dune buzzing on the ATVs just north at uh, north of Sand Lake, but it's never bothered me too much. So again, that's two state parks, Sitka Sedge and Whalen Island. But there's another reason that this is my first pick, and that's the backstory. So this area where the park and the estuary are now was supposed to be turned into like an elite private golf course. The idea to create a, the idea was to create a like abandoned dune style course on the northern coast. And it even had a name. It was called going to be called Pacific Gales. The membership cost was going to range from twenty five to thirty five thousand dollars per year. And it was two of the executives from the Nokia cell phone company that were pushing this effort uh, originally. The land changed hands a few times, but it was like a 20-year fight between locals that kind of wanted to preserve it the way it was and developers who wanted to create this amazing golf course. Eventually, the golf course plan collapsed. It was sold and eventually became a state park just a few years ago. So that's a pretty big road not taken. Um, Adam, knowing what you know about this area, can you imagine a giant golf course here? It just When you drive out there, it's, it's hard to wrap your brain around that idea. It's uh, amen to that because that that spot right there, I'm so glad you started with that because it is one of my favorite areas. And uh, one of the truly unique things about uh, Tolnook, because when I discovered that Whalen Island area, uh, you know, years ago, long before we got Sika Sedge, I, I thought, wow, this is really spectacular. It's got kind of that Hobbit forest feel that you get in a lot of the, the those kind of estuary tidal um, mud flat kind of uh, uh, spit areas. But what was really cool about it was almost never anyone there. <laughs> there was almost never anyone there. It was an easy leg stretch. Uh, but then when they opened up, uh, Sika Sedge, it was like Whalen Island on steroids. And so you kind of had like more options, more hiking and to be able to experience, I can't, I, the way they put the, the trail system together there and the way they showcase uh, the natural beauty uh, really kind of drives home the fact that how thankful we are that it didn't get uh, turned into a golf course. All right, Adam, go ahead and give us your first pick. Okay, well, I kind of uh, I kind of uh, clumped two together here because as the crow flies, they're not terribly far away from each other. But um, the the my first pick, which is two, is uh, Niagara Falls, uh, the Oregon's Niagara Falls, and I, I picked that primarily because. It's an easy hike. You know, I think it's only about a mile in and a mile back out, 350 feet of elevation gain, but the forest is really good. And you've got two dueling 120 foot waterfalls right there, which aren't, you know, it's kind of rare in that, that area of the North Oregon coast to find like quality waterfalls, especially kind of like right next to each other. Uh, the other cool thing about it, well, not cool, actually torturous uh, for anyone who's ever written a guidebook, as Zach knows, is that there's a lot of uh, discussion as to which is the actual Niagara Falls and which is Pheasant Creek Falls. It is a conversation I am no longer willing to entertain in any way, shape or form <laughs> because I've heard uh, very credible people from very credible agencies uh give me their thoughts on why uh, someone else is wrong and they're right. I don't care. I, I, <laughs> I think they're both great waterfalls and it's a great hike. Um, highly recommended. And then the other one that I'm including in my, in my first pick is um, Mount Hebo, 
which uh, historically speaking, uh, used to be an Air Force radar station, I believe, or at least, at least that was the, the site originally because of uh, really its positioning and the view that it commands. In my opinion, it's the best viewpoint in that county hands down because you get you get Cascade Peaks, right? You've got uh, Mount Hood, uh, I think the sisters you can see on a clear day, obviously, but you also get a 360 degree, here's the coast, there's Haystack Rock, you, you're seeing capes and spits everywhere. And um, the other cool thing about it is, you, you know, if, if you're short on time or you're feeling not not necessarily up, up to it, you can just drive up to the top and just kind of take that in yourself. Uh, or you can hike in, you know, you can stop at the campground there and turn it into kind of like a, I guess it would be eight miles total if you went in and out, or you could do the entire trail there. But there's some great history there too, because um, I believe that area was first, you know, the native tribes had a path between the Willamette Valley that kind of crossed through and, and went o over and around Mount Hebo, which seems like uh, maybe not necessarily the most uh, direct path to get to the coast from the Willamette Valley, but they had this kind of uh, trail. And then later settlers improved it and turned it into a horse route. And then the Forest Service found it in 1975. Uh, they shorted up a little and in 1984 opened uh, the eight mile long Pioneer Indian Trail from Hevo Lake to South Lake. So a lot of great history there and spectacular views. I've never been there when there is not like gale force winds. <laughs> It seems like it's one of those very the extreme areas. Right. Well, that's, I think, one of the, the fun things <laughs> about the Oregon coast is being ready for mud, wind, and rain. I think that we've, we've talked about that area a few once, at least once on a previous podcast, but that area um, between Niagara Falls and then Hebo is just, it's a cool lush rainforest area there's just like a lot of good stuff going on there it's actually my favorite place to go fern hunting as well oh. um because when you get the permits and uh you're allowed to to harvest a couple ferns like the biggest ferns like i swear in the world like grow in that area which probably shouldn't be surprising the amount of rain you get out there but just that area between niagara falls and then hebo it's just it's a really cool little corner of the coast we'll range to do some uh, fern exploring I'll go ahead and make the next pick back out on the coast a little bit. A little more obvious is the Cape Mirror State Scenic Viewpoint. This is kind of a relatively small area that really packs a lot in for families and maybe folks who don't otherwise want to travel too far from the car. It's a pretty short hike down to the lighthouse, which is incidentally uh, one of Oregon's shortest at just 38 feet. Uh, and it's also in sort of non-pandemic times. One of the only uh, lighthouses on the coast where you can climb up and stand next to the lens and look out uh, through the top of the lighthouse. So it's a pretty little fun adventure. It's also a great whale watching spot. So then once you've kind of had your hair blown around out on the end of the Cape, you can then walk back into the forested area uh, and visit the octopus tree, which is really one of those sort of beloved destinations for really generations of Oregon families. It's a huge Sitka spruce that historians say was used by local tribes for ceremonies. They trained it into this really distinctive shape. It's about 45 feet wide by 100 and something feet tall with huge branches that, it, that sort of come out from the trunk, extend sideways, and then go straight up to the sky. And it really feels like something kind of magical and, and something out of a storybook, maybe. And then there's a second hike that takes you to Oregon's largest Sitka spruce. So another little thing to check off your list. Yeah, the octopus tree is super cool. It's one of those places like Oregon loves naming things like, you know, these dramatic things. But this tree really does look like an octopus. Like this lives up to the well, hype. And wasn't there like a, a lot of different theories being floated around for forever about how and why it got that way from wind to it being trained that way to all kinds of things, right? Yeah, I remember hearing quite a few theories. Like you say, it was weather influenced or you know, this, that, and the other. But I think the the most recent generally accepted one was that it was sort of uh, human influence. Yeah, I, I think that's that's where they settled, and I, I'm willing to go with that. All right, heading into round two. Zach, give us your second pick. Okay, so for my second pick, we are going to go from the land to the water for some kayaking in tidal estuaries, rivers, and lakes right along the ocean. So the two places that I like most and that are pretty beginner friendly, if you, you know how to paddle, are uh, Sand Lake and the Nehalem River. 
Now, the Nehalem is pretty cool and it's open to paddle, you know, mostly year round. So that's a, a good option in summer if you're out visiting like Manzanita, or, you know, rent a house out there. But if you really want to try something cool, real cool adventure, I would recommend Sand Lake. It's actually back between uh, Sitka Sedge and Whalen Island, my, my first pick, that area we talked about. But Sand Lake is this totally intact, beautiful coastal estuary. Now, you typically have to go during winter because you need these real high tides to make the estuary fill up so that you can paddle it. But when that happens, the water fills in the marsh grass and it creates these channels through the marsh that basically turn it into like a water maze. Like you feel like you're paddling around in a corn maze almost, except it's marsh grass instead of corn. It's, it's a cool experience. Um, you, you can get out and paddle along the dunes um, that are right buffering it. You can paddle past an opening into the ocean. And so you'll get some, some waves that come in that you can ride a little bit. So that's pretty sweet. But my favorite part of paddling out there was these harbor seals that are all over the place and they kind of come in and they watch you from a distance. Like you'll see their little head pop up and they almost stare at you, but they never get very close. And apparently there's a reason for this. I was told that uh, Native Americans in the areas used to hunt seals from like these handcrafted kayaks. Like for a millennia, they did this. This was a big part of their diet. And evolutionarily, the seals retained this mental fear of humans in boats. So they put their heads will pop up and they'll sort of watch you like you're like, a, like very suspiciously, like you're like a teenager, like walking into the neighborhood, like carrying fireworks. Um, so anyway, um, I got that information. I went with an outfitter for that trip just because it's kind of a, a unique specialized trip. Uh, you can do it yourself for sure. You just got to know the right tides and information and stuff like that. But the the group that I went with was called uh, Kayak Tillamook and it was a good experience. So I would recommend That's it. That's awesome. I've actually used them before uh, for, um, where was it? Oh, and Garibaldi did some kayaking. Yeah, and it's fun too. You know, I'm kind of a whitewater kayaker, so that's that's what I like. But the, like, the what's nice about um, the estuary kayaking is that it's it's pretty beginner friendly. Like you can just paddle around, and it's flat right. water, so it's it's way easier than like running whitewater or going out into the ocean and doing ocean kayaking. It's kind of a nice middle beginner friendly. Well, I'm glad you brought up uh, kayaking or paddling out there too, because they have a, a pretty extensive water trail system in Tillamook County. So like mm -hmm. you said, if you're into kind of flat water paddling or beginner kayaking, it's a great spot to do it. Yeah. And I mentioned the Nehalem and Sand Lake, but there's uh, I'm pretty sure is the Nestucca river. There's a right. lot of rivers. Right, yeah. <laughs> To, to kayak out there like there's a lot once you get into it those are just the two that i think are sort of the most interesting or easiest so. yeah that's awesome all right adam your second okay pick. i'm starting i'm gonna gonna get get into the spits here I, i've got a few spits on my on my list and i'm gonna start with bay ocean and that one is so i love spit hiking for some of the reasons that we discussed with like the whalen island uh sika sedge area but uh spits are flat ish you know and so you've got the beach that you can always stroll along, but you also have those inland areas. And there's always just a, a, a myriad of, of kind of choose your own adventure paths that cut across the spits. And you can do an entire like 7.8 mile loop, I think gets, gets you around the whole thing. But it's also a really good spot for uh, mountain biking. And I think Zach, we've, we've discussed this before. I, I took some of those fat tire bikes out there and uh, those things are incredible. It was the first experience I'd had with it. And so, you know, they're obviously great for riding on the gravel or kind of compact sand on the beach. But some of those trails that that uh, explore the inland areas of the spits, those things will take just about anything. It's, it's kind of just uh, you're only limited by your own your own engine when it comes to thigh pumping. But uh, it's a great spot to do that fat tire biking. And then also just kind of being able to customize or tailor your own outing with regards to how long you want to make it. So uh, the spits are great. Bay Ocean also has, doggone it, I'm so remiss. I almost forgot the history of the place. Uh, this is where a uh, in the early 1900s, uh, this wide-eyed developer envisioned the Atlantic City of the West. And he built it on the, the Bay Ocean spit there. Uh, the bummer for him, though, was that uh, once they kind of built uh, the, the town, I guess, of Bay Ocean, the spit recessed and reformed. 
and the buildings started kind of giving way to the ocean. It was kind of this very slow motion, sad uh, eroding of a town. And in 1954, the spit uh, washed it out, washed out, became an island. And I think in 1960 or by 1960, the last remaining home was destroyed. And I don't think there's much left uh, in terms of remnants from that town out there anymore, but you could still kind of go uh, see where it was. The spits reformed. And if you're in the market for a diverse, uh, customizable coast hike, that, that spot's it. It reminds me of, there's a lot of places like this in Oregon where, especially in the early 1900s, they, you know, whether it was a mining boom town or these sort of like, you know, the Atlantic City of the West, like these kind of like really energetic pioneers came in with this big dream and tried to make it happen and then ran into Oregon's like natural butt kicking right. weather. Like, <laughs> Like, like all these things that we tried to do just aren't strong enough to withstand the power of Mother Nature. Yeah, here exactly. on the, uh, especially on the Oregon. Yeah, coast. I think the Oregon coast is like the the hold my beer of eco regions when it comes to like thwarting humans' plans. <laughs> that is a perfect way to put it. My next pick is fairly well known and comes with its own somber historical footnote. The Cape Lookout Cape Trail, a five-mile out and back, now known as one of the best whale-watching spots for its perch pretty far out from the coastline, was the site of a military plane crash during World War II. In 1943, a B-17 out on a training mission from Pendleton hit fog and slammed into the south side of the Cape. There's a marker about a third of the way out memorializing the incident. Unfortunately, jumping back to today, the heavy windstorm that passed through the region on Labor Day last year did considerable damage and left many downed trees along the trail. State Parks crew has been working to kind of clear things up, but like pretty much everything else during the pandemic, it's taking time. Thankfully, that's not all the area has to offer. The park also features access to the Neatart Spit, as well as a campground with both tents and yurt spots available. The Spit Hike is about 10 miles out and back and offers some coastal experience as well as views of Neatarts Bay. It's probably one of the more secluded Spit Hikes on the North Coast. I, I hope they get the, the trails reopened, the Cape Trail, because that is uh, one of the best spots on the coast for whale watching. Yeah, yeah, it's really cool. I mean, you can go out there and look down and like whales are like passing directly below your feet. Yeah, I, I talked to state parks about how long it's gonna be closed. It could be a while into summer for sure, um, but you know, it'll, it'll reopen eventually. And it's a cool enough place to begin with that it's worth checking out. They just reopen the yurts, they just reopen the cabins. So you can still go there and camp during the winter and uh, still a fun place to be. The following message is brought to you by the American Forest Resource Council. Did you know the Northwest Forest Sector applies cutting-edge technology to utilize every wood fiber possible? Residual material from saw logs, such as bark, wood chips, and sawdust, are often converted to pulp to make paper products. Today's sawmills also use these residuals to create renewable power for their own facilities and even sell energy to local utilities to power thousands of homes in their communities. AFRC stands for Sustainable Forests and Healthy Communities. Learn more at amforests.org. All right, Zach, give us your third pick. Oh, man. All right. So for my third pick, I'm <laughs> not sure if this, is, this might be a mistake or not, but I am going to dive into one of the most beautiful and troubled places in all of Oregon. Like this place could be its own podcast and maybe one day we'll do it. But the pick is Cape Kiwanda, the original Instagram famous spot on the coast that has been the site of so much news over the past five years. I've written about a war and peace length number of words about it. But before we get into kind of the wildness and all the news that's happened out there, let's start with the good stuff. So Cape Kiwanda's extremely beautiful spot nestled in Pacific City. You walk down past the Pelican Brew Pub, bam, and you know, Haystack Rock is right there, rising in all of its glory. Then you can climb up a trail along uh, to, to the top of a dune and get some really amazing panoramic views up and down the coast. And then you can see part, a lot of Cape Kiwanda itself. This area has become super famous for photographers, and it's easy to see why. The Cape is actually made up of sandstone that is gradually being destroyed by the ocean. And it creates these really dramatic, irregular cliffs and features that's right on top of the ocean. It's just unique. It's unlike any other place. 
It's so scenic that Oregon has been using it in tourism brochures going back to the 1920s. So, you know, there's a lot to love about this area. But the backstory, I mean, wow. Um, so the way I'm going to do this is just like four crazy things to know about Cape Kiwanda. So I'm going to take a deep breath. You guys, you guys ready <laughs> yeah. for this? Go for it. All right. Our first crazy thing is in the late 1960s and early 1970s, Cape Kiwanda was the proposed site of a nuclear power plant. Like uh, they were going to put a nuke there. And I found old reports detailing these plans about that site. And I talked to a former Oregon Parks manager, like one of the old timers about it. And he was like, yeah, it's unclear how far the plans got, but it was Portland General Electric had the option to do it. They had created plans. And back then there was barely anything out of Pacific City. So it's not as crazy as it sounds. There was just nothing there. And so they were like, hey, let's put a nuclear reactor out here. But once news spread around about that, people were obviously, you know, outraged and said, no, we don't want that. And that's what led to it becoming a state park, which brings me to the next point. Why wasn't it a state park before? Well, Oregon's state park system was not at all excited about making Cape Kiwanda part of the system. And the reason was that the Cape has been a death trap for more than a century. I wrote about a recent spate of deaths at Cape Kiwanda, really tragic in the mid 2010s. But look, the unstable sandstone cliffs there and the bulls, they have been killing people for a long time. There's often been a fence trying to block people away from it, but they tend to just go over it. And at least 18 people have died there from 1960 to 2016. The real number is probably much higher, closer to 25 or 30. It's one of the deadliest places in Oregon, bar none. And that includes recently when social media, especially Instagram, lured just huge amounts of crowds out onto this incredibly dangerous place. And it just had really tragic results there for a couple of years. All right. So that leads to kind of the final piece of this saga. And I just can't talk about Cape Kiwanda without mentioning this. So we talked about that unique geology, the sandstone that's being slowly destroyed and eroded. And that leads to some really amazing rock formations, the most famous of which was a stone hoodoo called either the duckbill rock or the pedestal or just the rock. It was basically this natural pedestal that rose from the sandstone and it became wildly popular to take like engagement photos or just to pose on top of because, you know, the ocean spread out behind you. It was just really a beautiful, unique spot. The problem is that it was luring people into this very dangerous area. And you know, apparently something happened. And at one point, this group of, of guys, and they were caught on camera, went out and destroyed this famous rock formation. And that sparked worldwide outrage. Like, I'm not kidding. This story went to like, Europe and Japan, it went viral all over the world, it launched an investigation uh, for the state police to find out who was responsible, which never amounted to much, by the way. And so the rock was just gone. And maybe the wildest part of all of this is that a few years after it happened, Cape Kiwanda has become a much safer place. Like they added a ranger to patrol the fence and try to keep people out of the dangerous areas. They outlawed driving onto the beach just pretty recently. But Oregon officials also told me that the death of the duckbill has made this area, for lack of a better word, safer, which is a bananas thing to think yeah. about. There have been zero, there have been zero deaths far fewer rescues where they used to happen all the time. And here's what an Oregon official told me. So keep in mind, this is state of Oregon officials saying this, it's not me, but they just said, look, nobody should ever change the landscape preserved at a park. We don't see any silver lining in their actions. That said, now that it's gone, there is less temptation to hop the fence and go into a dangerous area to get that picture you saw online. That's just an honest reality. So again, that's the Oregon Parks and Recreation Department. Certainly not excusing these actions, but look, I mean, Cape Kiwanda is about as complicated as it gets when you're talking about modern crowding, public lands, internet culture. It just all collided in this one small spot in Pacific City. Oh my City. gosh, so many thoughts. <laughs> I mean, to start with, what what a uh, jump up uh, from a uh, from a golf course is a nuclear reactor uh, in terms of what, what could have been. Uh, and then secondly, man, this is, this is why we can't have nice things. Right. Um, I, I actually, because of, of incidents like this, Zach, uh, 
I put a my my most recent guidebook that's coming out. I think in April. Plug uh, <laughs> the best easy day hikes of Salem and Eugene. Uh, which, by the way, thanks for helping out on that, Zach. Um, I put a uh, kind of a, a section in the in the beginning um, talking about stewardship and you know a lot of these places getting loved to death and what our responsibilities are as um, not just outdoors people or hikers, but as kind of uh, residents or stewards of the land in terms of setting proper examples and you know, doing what we're supposed to do, staying out of areas that are getting trampled to death, uh, paying attention to signage. And then also, uh, you know, something I, I promote a lot now, especially is places like Cape Kowander or Multnomah Falls or, you know, any of those uh, places that, that are just drawing Disneyland-like crowds. You know, if you're a local or you live in the, in the Northwest, pick pick an off season and a weekday morning or something, or or pick a time when it's it's not maybe the best weather conditions to go visit some of those places, and then expand your repertoire during like the summer or the weekends and go into some of these places that maybe don't see as many visitors and kind of try and try and spread it out and you know and and even stewardship with with regards to you know jo joining like. Uh, WTA, the Washington Trails Alliance, or uh, Trail Keepers of Oregon, and joining like a work party and getting a, a broader understanding of what it takes to maintain these sorts of places and, and keep them serviceable and functional. You know, and I think it's especially important now, just given amid the pandemic, when the outdoors was one of the only things open, and just we saw a flood of people who you know, maybe previously hadn't really ventured that far out. And so a lot of these concepts are still pretty new to them. Right. Yeah. Well said, because we did get like a big influx of outdoor activity when people were just so itchy uh, and outdoors was one of the places you could be. And one of the nice things about Cape Kiwanda is that I'm not going to say the story like has a happy ending because there's just so much heartbreak that happened out there. But we did learn lessons from that. And, you know, they put a ranger out there. That's that's, that's really helped. You know, they're not allowing driving on the beach there, which I think is going to help. Um, so a lot of things of positive things have happened since all that chaos of the mid 2010s. But, you know, it's just a perfect cautionary tale. All right, Adam, go ahead and hit us with your third pick. Well, let's uh, let's kind of piggyback on uh, Cape Kowanda, or at least uh, that area and its immediate environs. Uh, my next pick is the Nestucca Spit, which is kind of part of that area. It's just south of Cape Kowanda and Haystack Rock. There, it's in the the Bob Straub um, State Park. I think it's a state park. Consult my notes. Uh, but yeah, so the Nestucca Spit to me it offers a lot of the beauty. Uh, you can still see Cape Kiwanda and, and Haystack Rock without necessarily having to deal with the crowds and being you know that close to it. You, you still get the view. Um, it's about a mile and a half south of, of the Cape, and it's a lot more peaceful, a lot more wildlife laden out there on the spit. Uh, and you can take it's, it's roughly a five mile loop, I guess, if you do the whole thing. But it's that same kind of thing that I was describing with Bay Ocean in that you have a lot of different options. Uh, and it's a lot more peaceful <laughs> than Cape Kiwanda. No, no, nothing against Cape Kiwanda. I love it dearly. But uh, you get the views and a little bit more peace. Another uh, interesting historical aspect to that area was uh, back in the 60s, speaking of things that, that could, could have been that didn't, uh, a battle over the area was waged between the Department of Transportation and the state treasurer. The Department of Transportation thought that Highway 1 should head down the middle of that spit and across the mouth of the Nestucca Bay. Uh, the state treasurer at that time, who is Bob Straub, thought differently and eventually got his way seeing the highway swerve inland instead. And apparently that stance was popular because he was later elected governor. So instead of freeway, uh, we've got that split there and that the, the peaceful views of Cape Kiwanda. Cool. So uh, let me ask you this, like if you were headed down to Cape Kiwanda and you saw like, you know, a gong show occurring around like the Pelican brew pub and stuff, would it be, is it pretty easy to get over to the trailhead and to get into the area that you're Absolutely. talking about? Absolutely. You uh, drive, I think it's, it's about a mile, keep going south on 101 and you'll see the little turnout, you know, 101 kind of banks hard to the left and there's a little sign for Bob Straub off to the right and, and there you are. And that's another thing. I'm glad I'm glad you brought that up, Zach, because 
one of the things I've been encouraging people to do lately with regards to safer travel anyway is, you know, kind of the, the car trip or the day trip where you have a lot of these things kind of lined up as potentialities. And so if you're driving by and like you said, uh, Cape Kiwanda is just, you know, throngs and it's just overrun already, you know, head on to the next spot or head on to the next spot. There's a ton of pullouts and waysides and, and hikes along the side of the road and viewpoints uh, in the Tillamook Coast area. And actually we'll, we'll touch on some of those a little bit later, but yeah, it's easy to just kind of continue your route or your loop, if you will, if you're doing a day trip out there and, you know, pick the places that look safer uh, to you and that might be a little less crowded. All right. For my third pick, I'm going to go ahead and have to give credit for this one to legendary Statesman Journal outdoors columnist Henry Miller. He was the one that kind of showed me the way the cockle and especially at the clam beds in Tillamook Bay, sort of just north of Tillamook aways. The easiest access is to go out at a sandy bar that's outside of or just inside of Garibaldi, which is, I believe, about four miles north of Tillamook. You go ahead and pull off on a gravel lot. And then there's a staircase that takes you down onto sort of the tidal area from 101. Now, the trick here is to check the tide tables pretty closely and look for the fabled minus tides. That's when tides are lower than the mean tide, sort of the lowest of the low. That gives you more time to sort of better access some of the areas of the clam beds that don't usually see action. So out here, you'll find three types of clams. There's the cockle, the butter clam, and the gaper. I found the cockle is kind of that sweet spot of easiest to harvest and best flavor and texture. Cockles are usually found by, you sort of look for a pair of air holes, dig a little down just next to it, and then it's, you know, usually two to three inches down, pluck them out, put them in your bag, and you're good to go. In Oregon, each person has a limit of 20 per day, so you usually find find your limit pretty quickly uh, before the tide starts to come back in. Gapers, on the other hand, are like a whole lot more work. They're usually like a foot to two feet down, so you're going to be digging, you're going to be hitting rocks. Really depends on your dedication level. I don't really find the flavor of gapers all that much better, so it's not really worth it uh, personally. Now, there's no shortage of recipes, but obviously a simple clam chowder or even a clam linguine with cockles that you just sort of pulled out of the sand that morning is a really satisfying dinner. Um, you really, it's pretty easy. You just need a bucket, a rake, or a shovel, and of course your shellfish license before you head out. They're just $10 per year for Oregon residents. So David, you have taken quite a few people. Uh, you and Henry, I know, have taken a lot of novices out to do clamming for this type the, for the first time. What yep. what have you found? Like, I mean, when you have just total beginners and you're bringing them out onto you know the, these tidal areas, do they pick it up pretty quick? Is it like a pretty easy thing to grasp? Yeah, I think once you sort of get what you're looking for, again, you're looking for like the little pair of air holes. I think it's pretty easy to kind of scan the ground you know, look around, dig around a little bit. It's kind of fun because you don't normally, you know, get your hands dirty when you go to the coast. This is sort of a little more interactive than than like a hike. And it's also something that's pretty easy to pair with a hike. You sort of hit the clam beds in the morning, then head for a hike later. So it's great for families. You buy a buy a license for everybody and everyone needs their own bucket. But outside of that, it's pretty low key. And, you know, there's there's something pretty great for eating something you sort of plucked yourself out of nature. David, you, you, you got to take me. I, I think I've, I've been cockleless to this point in my life and I, I need to rectify <laughs> that. You've, you've, you've sold me. You know, there's purple varnish clams in other clam beds that are like super ubiquitous all over the place. Cockles are a little bit harder to find, but I feel like they taste better and it's not too oh, tricky. Man. Yeah, they they got to be better than purple varnish <laughs> clams. Like you can you can easily get like, a hundred purple varnish clams without even trying and then like realize, oh man, I have to like clean all of these and turn them into food. And that's going to take me an entire day. So <laughs> the cockles are, they're, they're a little meatier too, aren't they? Like they're a little bit bigger. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, after I get done processing my limit of 20, you know, I usually have four bags and I'll freeze those, save a little bit for dinner that night. And they'll last you, you know, a couple months. Nice. So. All right, Zach, go and hit us with your fourth pick. All right, so my fourth pick, much more straight ahead than some of the other historical-laden novels that I have unfolded for you here. My fourth pick is going to be winter steelhead fishing on one of the many coastal streams in Tillamook County. So 
catching a winter steelhead is another bucket list Oregon experience. And the coastal rivers are kind of the, the best place to make that happen. There is nothing that quite compares to the power and athleticism of a winter steelhead on the line. I remember in one old and pretty badly written story I published years ago that I referred to winter steelhead as like the running backs of the river because yeah, that's, I know that's, that's cheesy writing. I'm going to own it, but they've always struck me as these just really powerful, graceful fish. And they are incredibly hard to catch because they're just, they're called the fish of like a million casts or something like that. Just they're hard. And the winter run of steelhead um, come in to the coast around January. Um, it can last through March. As far as the rivers to target, you've got the Nestucca, the Wilson, uh, along with the Trask and Kilches, which are uh, mostly catch and release. I'm by no means a winter steelhead expert. I usually go with people who know what they're doing and I just they help me along. Um, but if, if you want to experience catching in this fish in Oregon, again, it's a bucket list experience. Call the local bait shops. There is a ton of local guides out there. Support those local businesses and, you know, ex experience this for, for once in your life. Absolutely. Uh, yeah, I can't recommend that that enough. And like you said, Zach, there's a, there's a ton of really great uh, guides and outfitters out there and a ton of places to go fishing. Yeah. Tillamook County, it's one of the best for winter steelhead. Agreed. For sure. All right, Adam, number four. Okay, so this is kind of a an, an area uh, with kind of, I guess, two hikes that kind of jump off from it, and it's the Rears Camp area. And I don't think it's technically within Tillamook County, or maybe you hike into Tillamook from, I think, Washington County. But if you've ever taken Highway 26 uh, to get, or I'm sorry, Highway 6 uh, to go up and over the range and into Tillamook, you kind of... Uh, once you get into that University Falls area near the top, uh, you, you might see like, uh, I think it's the Gales Creek has a uh, has a trailhead up there. But if you go all the way down to the bottom uh, to where the Rears Camp area is, there is uh, the Step Creek Trail kind of jumps off of the Gales Creek Trail down there. And when I wrote this guidebook, I think I labeled it like Step Creek Gales Creek Explorations because they were still working on kind of making a nice little loop connection there. And so now it's a 7.4 mile uh, loop that you can do. Uh, and of course you can still do an out and back down there. But uh, the, the thing I really, really like about uh, Step Creek and Gales Creek is A, very few people, or at least relatively few. I think uh, the last three times I've gone and hiked that area, uh, I was the only person I saw all day once, and I think I encountered two other groups uh, the other two times. So uh, a really good spot to find some solitude or at least a little less traffic. And it also has, especially for like the Tillamook State Forest, some of the, the lushest, greenest, oxalis carpeted forest uh, that I found in the area. And as a matter of fact, uh, the other hike that you can do from that Rears Camp area is the Triple C uh, Trail. And that's just a, another little loop, but it actually visits some old growth forest, which, as you know, in, in you know the North Coast isn't always the most accessible or easy to find kind of uh, forest. But you get to kind of parallel the, the Nehalem River there for a little bit, and then you also get some newer forest and then also the the old growth forest so that's definitely one of my favorites uh in the area so so one quick question about uh you mentioned old growth out there now is that area that just escaped the wrath of the tillamook burn because i guess when i've been out in the tillamook state forest it is you know you can tell it's it's all fairly young right. forest just because you know the whole replanting effort after the you know the titanic tillamook burn so this did this escape it or how is there old i don't know there? for sure but if i had to wager a guess i would say because of the area that it's in uh you know it's kind of uh in the in the low area and kind of a ravine kind of away from the heart of the tillamook burn and so there's the spot as you end, end the hike called the, the Rears Meadow. And that's some of the oldest trees in the area. And I'm guessing it just somehow escaped the, the burn, escaped logging. And, you know, it's not a particularly large area. Uh, you know, don't get me wrong. It's not like hiking through, you know, miles and miles of old growth, but it is an intact old growth meadow. And so, yeah, if I had to wager a guess, it would be it, it somehow escaped the burn based on its location. Yeah, that, that makes sense. And I mean, you're right. Like we, we've talked about the Valley of the Giants on here a number oh, of, yeah. of times. And, you know, it's just a tiny patch of ancient forest, like in a sea of, 
you know, logging and second growth and stuff like that. I mean, out in the coast range, there have been people in the forest for hundreds right. of years, um, and, you know, the, doing fairly intensive logging. So finding those tiny little patches of old growth, that's sort of a, a, a fun little mission in the Yeah, in the totally range. worth it. Cool. All right, Zach, what's your fifth pick all right so for my fifth pick um i have yet another absolutely fascinating place that i'm gonna do my best not to go on quite as long as i did about uh, cape kawanda but so my final pick is proposal rock and the nezcoin ghost forest now this is just a pretty little beach in the tiny town of nezcoin uh and so you walk out onto the beach and you know notice kind of a really big island sea stack and it is known as proposal rock at low tide, you can actually go out there, climb up a steep little trail to the top, and it's kind of it's a fun trip, great ocean views and stuff like that. But obviously, the name stands out. And again, this is just one of my favorite little histories. So the origins of that name go back to a sailor named Charlie Gage, and he came to the town of Nezcoin in the 1800s. Apparently, his heart was filled with love for a local girl named Delia Page, the daughter of a homesteading family that tended a farm along the Nezcoin Creek. As the story goes, Charlie took Della out on a boat and they floated to the rock. It's unclear if they walked onto the rock or not, but he asked for her hand in marriage around here. And in honor of it, the Page family, again, who are locals, they started calling it Proposal Rock and the name stuck. So much so that it is now a popular place for people to go and get engaged. Um, a few years ago, I was writing about this area and I talked to the guy that owns Proposal Rock Inn. And he said that while they do benefit from a lot of people coming out there to get married and to get engaged, they've stopped promoting it quite so much because what they found is that it puts a lot of pressure on couples. <laughs> like if they were staying uh you know in the inn called proposal rock and it created this expectation that someone better propose and call it the sweaty sweaty palms in and so they they still do but they've kind of de-emphasized that um just a little bit and another word of caution for something decidedly unromantic is that you know i talked about how you can climb up proposal rock at low tide the problem is tide eventually comes back in and a number of couples have been stranded at the top like as the water got really high which would kind of put a damper on the engagement Um, (laughs) so so don't get stranded on proposal rock also if you're looking for something decidedly less romantic but in my opinion a lot cooler the area is also home to the nezcoin ghost forest and at the lowest winter tides the stumps of this entombed collection of ancient sitka spruce become visible so here's how this happened so long ago these trees were entombed by a massive earthquake Uh, We believe it was the last giant Cascadia earthquake back in 1700, and it actually dropped the coastal forest below the sand, but then preserved it in this saltwater bath. So the ghost forest became visible for the first time in 1997 uh, after a series of really big storms just swept down away the layers of sand and the trees started poking up through the surface. And apparently now at low tides, I don't know exactly how low the tides have to be for you to see it but you can go out and and find it. I know it's in the winter. Um, I'm going to end this with uh, when I was researching the story, uh, you know, when this first became visible, it was a, it was a pretty big news event. And so Brad Kane, who's with the Associated Press, went out there and this is the first sentence that he wrote. And it's just a really good one. So here's what he wrote. Like gnarled fingers rising from the surf, Hundreds of stumps from an ancient forest that has been entombed since the time of Jesus are being slowly unearthed by El Nino's pounding waves. Wow. So that is, that's Brad Kane, ladies and gentlemen. That man, (laughs) that man can write a lead. Um, And so that is just, you know, overall, I don't know. Like Nesquin is sort of like, yeah, you know, it's kind of cool and stuff, but like just the interesting tidbits there, like just have always made it a favorite spot. I think, and that that's one of the things that it's worth uh, researching and taking the time to find out when tides are and what they're doing, because I think that is a, a spot that is special for that reason that, you, you know, you don't get to see, I don't know how many other spots are like that. I know a few goes for us up and down the coast, but uh, you know, they're, they're few and far between and, and that one's really worth it. I'm glad you included that in your list. All right, Adam, your fifth pick. Okay. Uh, the fifth pick is special to me for a few reasons. And it's, 
I don't know if you would even necessarily label it as a hike so much as a, a leg stretch because it's, it's two little loops. And if you combine them, it's just under one mile. But the Steam Donkey Trail is off of, of Highway 26, and it's actually right behind the Sunset Rest Area. So there's a there's a little creek or a river, and, and there's a bridge that goes right across it, and then you have the Steam Donkey Trail. Uh, what's really cool about it is that the lower kind of loop, which is about a half mile, is not technically ADA compliant. Uh, it wasn't built that way. You know, it's it's not paved. It's still a single track uh, trail, but it is so easily graded and wide that it, it almost counts as an ADA. So if you're taking a road trip and you've got, you know, just the need for a leg stretch or people that uh, might not be able to go on as, as long a journey uh, as you would like, that's a great option. You tag the other uh, half half a loop on there and you get the full the full eighth of a mile. The one of the things I really like about it, in addition to it just kind of being at a rest stop and, and a way to get some fresh air and exercise, is it's really good forest. And it's a great spot for trillium in the spring. Uh, there's a lot of vine maples. And so it makes also for an exceptional fall hike. And because of the ease and the location, this, this is actually the very first spot I took a hike with my mother. Uh, who was kind of uh, getting into better health this year and was able to do some hiking. And that was the first hike I ever took with my mom was this this uh, last year was the Steam Donkey Trail, which, by the way, is named for the steam powered winches that uh, the logging or logging operations used to use in the 1800s and 1900s. Yeah, that's a fantastic name for a trail. I, I love that. The Steam Donkey Trail, like just the name makes me want to go. Yeah, check that absolutely. Out. Have you been before? I've Definitely not been. Check it out. It's uh, right there behind the rest stop, and almost no one knows that it's there because uh, you kind of have to go across the the bridge over the South Fork of Rock Creek and just kind of take a uh, a leap of faith that it's going to go somewhere, and off you go. Uh, it's it's <laughs> kind of like, have you done that that four county uh, point, or is it four county? Yeah, I know what you're. I yeah, know what you're four, talking about. Four county spot, or it's where all the four counties get together. It's right off the side of the highway there, and that's a great hike. All right. So obviously there were a ton of places we just didn't get to mention. Um, so we'll have probably a list of honorable mentions. Zach, why don't you give us yours? Yeah. So there's some important ones to mention here. First of all, um, normally when we're talking about the Tillamook Coast, we would include the very famous Oswald West State Park. But because there's so much interesting stuff going on there, we're going to record that as its own podcast to give it its just due. A second one that is a big deal. So out uh, in Bay City area, um, rail riding has become a big deal. So these are contraptions that were created so you can pedal down these decommissioned railroad tracks or mostly decommissioned railroad tracks. It was a big sensation out there a few years ago. Uh, the company that was previously doing it is not doing it, but another company is planning to come in to do that sort of rail pedaling experience. So they expect that to be coming back. Uh, this summer or spring, just the details haven't been finalized. So that's one of the reasons it wasn't uh, my pick this time because it's still in flux a little bit. Finally, I would want to mention the Tillamook Forest Center, which is one of the coolest museums in the Coast Range. It covers the extensive history of the Tillamook Burn. Um, it connects to the Wilson River Trail. It's a really great area. Uh, the problem is it's been closed for quite a while because of COVID-19. So, uh, you know, once the pandemic starts to um, dissipate and they feel safe about opening, uh, the Tillamook Forest Center is an awesome place that you have to make sure to visit. So I'm sure there's other places, but those are the honorable mentions that jump out to me. All right, Adam, your uh, honorable mentions? Uh, those are those are really good ones, Zach, by the way. Uh, just a couple more uh, quick honorable mentions for me. Uh, one is Munson Creek Falls, and that is... Uh, just south of town uh, of Tillamook proper, I believe. And it's, it's kind of wonky. If you're not looking for, for the, the, the sign for it, you'll miss it. Uh, and, and it's, again, it's more of a leg stretch than a, than a hike. I think it's like a, a total of a mile again, but this is one of those places where, uh, you get some legitimate old growth, like legitimate old growth in that little area. And it also leads to 
319 foot three tiered Munson Creek Falls, which is perhaps the tallest uh, in the state west of the Willamette River. And it's right there in Tillamook. And then my final uh, kind of uh, uh, honorable mention is going to be the Pronto Pup. <laughs> I, I, I love that place. And depending on who you talk to, it's, it's the birthplace of the corn dog. And it, and it also happens to be, or the original Pronto Pup is the uh, home of the original corn dog. And at the one there in uh, Rockaway Beach is, I believe, the very first rideable or mechanized corn dog that you can ride in the world. So shout out to the Pronto Pup. So, so can you can you detail the differences from a Pronto Pup to a corn dog? I'm told it has something to do with the flower, I believe, what type of flower is being used. Uh, I This is another debate that I try to steer very clear from, much like the Pheasant Creek and Niagara falls. Uh, there's some pretty heated discussions I've been privy to or, or seen online versus what is a uh, proper Pronto pup, what's a corn dog, who invented what. All I know is they're delicious and you can ride a corn dog. All right. We'd like to thank our guest, Adam. Thanks for coming on and thanks for speaking with us about this pretty amazing area. Absolutely. Thank you guys very much for having me on. It's It's been a pleasure and hope to do it again. All right, that's about all the time we have for in this episode of the Explore Oregon podcast. Make sure to check out other episodes. Hit us up at statesmanjournal.com slash explore. You can also find us on SoundCloud, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, all those fun places. Thanks for listening. We'd like to thank our sponsor, the American Forest Resource Council. AFRC supports responsible forestry on public lands throughout the Pacific Northwest. For the environment, for our economy, and for our future. Learn more at amforest.org.